Good morning and welcome to day two of the Deutsche Bank Technology Conference. Uh, my name is Lloyd Walmsley. I lead the internet research effort here at Deutsche Bank. Uh, we have another good day in store for us and I'm excited to kick things off with Pierre Dimitri Gorkoti, the VP of Delivery at Uber. Uh, Pierre, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. And thanks everyone for, uh, for the time. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go through some questions with Pierre, but if anyone in the audience wants to ask a question, you can use the module below the webcast uh, or feel free to send me an email or Bloomberg chat and I can integrate your questions uh, into our conversation. Uh, so Pierre, you know, wanted to start off at a high level. You've now been in charge of the delivery business for about six months. Can you talk about what it looked like when you came in and what some of the key changes have been in strategy and operations? Yes, of course. So I, I took over uh, indeed the, the delivery business back in February, so about six months ago. Uh, it is very clear that the business had been geared towards uh, growth at all costs. Uh, and frankly, it did a pretty good job at that, considering that uh, you know, in a matter of four years or so, uh, we, we turned Eats, Uber Eats into one of the largest food delivery platforms outside China. But as far as I'm concerned, um, a big chunk of my focus has been uh, in moving this business towards more of a sustainable growth model. And so like, the couple of things I can highlight in particular that have kept me busy uh, over the past few months, I'd say number one, and at a macro level, it's really been around um, further focusing our efforts. Uh, as you know, uh, we are, as you probably know, we have shut down a number of countries uh, in, the, in the early part of the year to try and make sure that we could um, invest and lean into places where we see the biggest opportunity for ourselves. So that's kind of been, um, I'd say, a, a macro focus point. Uh, two, we have been leaning into the growth opportunity that COVID has created for us. And hopefully some of the numbers that we've published for Q2 uh, makes that clear. And this, this has really been about making sure that we could very quickly uh, tweak our products and, and our service to really adapt to the new realities of COVID. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to chat more uh, about that for the, the conversation today. Um, we have, and I have tried to uh, revigorate or, or create uh, a strong sense of emergency around all of the competitive fights that we're having around the world. And I would say I'm pretty happy with some of the progress that were made in a number of important markets. Uh, for instance, most recently Canada or Japan, but, but, but I'd say many more. And finally, it's really been about um, you know, improving our, our P&L, improving the efficiency of how we do business. Uh, and you've seen already some, some strong improvements on our burn profile and, and our margins. Uh, and this is, you know, frankly, a, a path that uh, we are all marching towards uh, inside the, the delivery business unit, and that eventually will uh, get us to, to at least a break-even position. So on profitability, you know, it's a big focus among investors and inside the company. So be before we get uh, deep into the operational levers, are you done rationalizing which markets you're in on the delivery side, or is that still an ongoing effort? Well, I'd, I'd say um, overall, I'm pretty happy with the portfolio that we are now left with. Uh, we are a number one player in two thirds of the uh, growth booking, international growth booking that we have. 
uh, right now, and we are actually a strong number two in the majority of the remaining countries. So overall, the portfolio feels strong, uh, which means I don't see a burning need uh, to uh, you know to do more. Now we're going to remain opportunistic as we've always been, and that means there could be uh, deals on the margin or, or, or moves on the margin, but that, that's not a priority right now. Uh, our strategy as a whole, maybe I should have sorry, there continues to be. Uh, that we want to be either in a leadership in a number one position or in a strong number two position in the countries where we operate, and that remains the case today. Can you call out uh, some of the key drivers to, to getting to profitability and maybe the trade-offs of pulling some of those levers, touching on things like cost per delivery, optimization, basket size? You know, where are you now and how much room is left on some of these key levers? Yes, of course. So the, the way I think about uh, getting to profitability as a business uh, when it comes to the food delivery side of things is really about uh, improving our take rates, uh, our, our net revenue margins, and I, I'll touch about that in a minute, and then optimizing everything that is below the, the take rate level. As far as take rate is concerned, some of the biggest movers are really uh, the basket size, number one. Um, obviously, COVID has been helping us to some degree, but we've also done a lot on our hand. On, we, we've done a lot on our side. Sorry to increase basket size. I'm sure if you use the app, you are noticing that we are doing a much better job at suggesting bundles and things like that. Um, and we've had pretty good results in Q2. I don't know that we have shared that before, but the basket size uh, improved by about 17% in the US and 11% globally on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh, that's for Q2. So this is definitely a big, um, a big and substantial lever when it comes to improving the unit economics of, of the business and one that we expect to continue and pull from. Uh, the number two uh, that I want to call out that still plays into the take rate margins uh, is the cost per delivery. This is something that we're very much uh, focused on. It's a factor or a matter of like, what is the network density overall, both on the restaurant side and on the courier slash uh, demand side of things? How do you reduce idle time? Uh, how do you get to batch more and more orders together uh, to try and, and really reduce that cost per delivery? We have seen also strong progress uh, on, on that front. If you look at batching, for instance, uh, we had in August about one and a half times more uh, batch orders on a, on a relative basis, on a rate basis, than we did back in January. Um, and that's really coming on the back of iSoft, the technology, but also the, the increase in scale that the business now have in most countries around the world and pretty much all countries around the world uh, nowadays compared to, to earlier in the year. So that's kind of the, the you know, two big levers that, that play into uh, the take rate. And then, then the, you know, the additional levers I can touch on if, if you want. Uh, what's under the take rate are really things like, well, promotion, uh, which tends to be um, a, a factor on, uh, that tends to correlate to the competitive intensity that we see in a given country. And so as hopefully things continue to rationalize uh, over time, we think that this, uh, the need for us to spend on promotions will probably get down. So this is uh, something that can prove to be um, uh, an important lever as well. And finally, you have all of the operational cost lines, things like support costs, people costs, payments, and so on that, uh, you know, we're probably not uh, for the eats business, big areas of focus up to a few months back and, and now areas I'm spending a lot of time on and where we're seeing actually pretty strong progress. So asking it a, a slightly different way as well, you know, how much of the improvement from today's, you know, up roughly 12% A&R take rates to the long-term guidance 
to 15 will come from kind of a mix shift to smaller restaurants or higher fees to restaurants, higher fees to end users versus just more, more efficiency on the delivery side? Well, I, I don't want to be too prescriptive, but what, what I'd say here is at a macro level, I don't think that we need to charge higher fees uh, from restaurants or higher fees from end users uh, to be able to deliver on the take rate improvements that, uh, that I've alluded to and that, that 15%, get to that 15% uh, aspirational uh, guidance we've, we've, given, we've given everyone. Um, the key levers, as I said earlier, are really going to be about basket size improvements, uh, delivery efficiency, uh, restaurant mix shift. I have not touched a lot on that, uh, actually, in my previous answer. But if you look at the business, you'll see a pretty large uh, divergence between the sort of marketplace fee we have uh, when we are dealing with, uh, say, a small mom and pop relative to what we have when we're talking about some of the you know, very large and global enterprise partners. And so the way we um, you know, we, we, we influence shift, we, we influence mix, sorry, has a big implications on, on, on the take rate as well, the, the average MPF we, we get. And finally, some of the consumer incentives, some of the promotions that I touched on before, uh, some of them being uh, above and some of them being below the, the net uh, revenue, uh, the net rate, the, the take net rate, ANR, the adjusted net revenue margin. So, so looking beyond ANR take rates to the kind of 30% EBITDA profitability, you know, wh where do you see the biggest levers uh, on the on the cost side below that ANR line? You, you touched on it a little bit, but um, you know, wanted to also dig into customer support. It seems like uh, you've you've changed that to more of kind of an automated model. So, wondering if, if that's having any impact on on customer or restaurant churn. Yeah, well, of course. So, um, so maybe starting with customer support, and then I can broaden broad a bit my answer. But starting with customer support, you're exactly right that this is uh, definitely a big chunk of our um, of our uh, cost structure. Basically, uh, we are making and investing in a lot of automations that are helping us uh, reduce the the number of uh, trips that that need to have a, a human uh, contact uh, or human involved. Uh, actually, our contact rates uh, on a global basis have been down about 40% on a year-over-year year basis, and that's really on the back of uh, deflecting a number of those contacts to uh, automations, but also, frankly, uh, reducing the, the overall defect rate. So some of the contacts are just being, you know, killed in the first place by continuing to focus more and more on uh, the customer experience, on the restaurant experience, and making sure that we tackle each and every of those defects one after the other and, and find structural solve uh, for each of them. So this, is, uh, this has been already um, something that's really moved in the right direction, but this is one that we will continue to uh, invest into. I think there's a lot more we can do. That's, that's for customer support specifically. Uh, beyond that, well, there are a bunch of things. There's clearly some operating leverage on, on fixed costs. Uh, as you've, you've seen, our top line has been uh, growing substantially over the past few months, and we, we've done, uh, I think, a good job at uh, being very disciplined with our fixed costs. And if anything, you know, taking tough decisions, hard decisions, uh, like what we've done with headcount reduction, uh, that uh, you know have saved across the, the company entirely about one billion dollar, um, and and you know we'll we'll stay focused on that fixed cost line. So that's kind of another. Um, another set of things uh, to to you know where to expect uh, some uh, some help some some tailwind from, uh, and finally um, I alluded to that earlier, but it's very clear that 
marketing plays a big role as well in our uh, in our PLs. Some of that is a function of competitive intensity, uh, promotions, and so on. But some of that is also a function of uh, how efficient we are at acquiring customers, at engaging them uh, over the long term. And on that front, uh, I would say that uh, I feel quite good about some of the levers we're starting to deploy to create this engagement or to help with acquisition, be it our membership program uh, that has now rolled out in, in a number of additional markets, most recently in Brazil, in Japan, in Mexico, for instance. Uh, so this, this membership program is a good example of that. A lot of the things you can now see in-app where we're trying to uh, encourage a lot more cross uh, promotions between our different business lines. Uh, if you look at, for instance, our core Uber app, you will see now that you have the Eats use case that's being promoted. You have the grocery use case with corner shop that's being promoted. And those are things that are actually helping a lot with customer acquisition costs and frankly engagement as well. So this is also going to be a driver of um, improving marketing uh, of marketing efficiencies effectively. So you all have talked about batching as something that Postmates has done well. Can, can you talk about what they've really figured out and where are you guys in terms of maybe percent of deliveries that are batched and where, where do you think that can get to? So I'd say we were certainly very impressed uh, overall with what Postmates have been doing on the batching front and, and more broadly on the cost per delivery front. It is very clear that this has been a top priority for them for quite some time. So we're kind of looking forward to uh, to learning from that or, or, or to joining forces down the line once the deal gets approved. Um, the things uh, when it comes to batching is um, there are few things to keep in mind. Well, first, as, as usual, it's a it's a factor of um, your density, i.e., how often you have two orders uh, that are going in the same place and the same direction uh, at the same time, and so it's a factor of your density in a given city. Um, it's also a factor of decisions and trade-offs you decide to make as a business. And if I think about Uber Eats, uh, we have over-indexed quite a lot on things like delivery times, for instance, which means we might have been a bit less aggressive than other players when it comes to when it comes to batching. Um, it is a matter of the technology you have and how, how you know, refined or sophisticated that technology is. And very clearly, to my earlier points, Postmates has done a lot there. And finally, there's an element of, um, and you know, that, that's kind of a sub-bullet of the technology point, but being smart about what is it that you are actually transporting and starting to understand what are the items that are going to be uh, most easily uh, batched is the food cold? Is the food uh, hot? Um, and, and, you know, as we expand towards non-perishable delivery use cases like Postmates does today, that's also going to change the, 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 the land of opportunities when it comes to batching. So those are a lot of the things that I'm certainly looking forward to engaging with uh, Postmates on and that, that I think can, can drive some, uh, some improvement on, on the Uber side. So, uh, yeah, personally, I, I noticed uh, recently some increase in batching from Uber Eats. Is there, are there some things you guys have been ramping up, uh, you know, even prior to Postmates on the batching side in the U.S.? Well, I'd say with, with me joining the, um, the Uber Eats uh, business and taking on this role, um, the, the focus of the shift that I described towards more of a sustainable uh, growth model has gotten me to focus on a ton of things that maybe were not as big of a priority just yet before. And I think the efficiency of the courier network 
uh, is a very natural place to focus on just because it flows straight into a PNL, which means any single sense you save is something that has a substantial impact on margins and, and PNL. So I, I will definitely you know, tell you that I've, I've put a lot more uh, of an effort on that. Uh, and that's probably why you've, you've seen us uh, test a lot more things and, and drive our batch rates up uh, to the point uh, I was making earlier with, with batch rates being at one and a half X uh, what they were in uh, in January. So yes, we've certainly been pushing a number of things, uh, and we'll continue to do so. And and you know, won't wait for busmates to try and um, make that a, a big focus area for us. So I, I have one um, along along this profitability question line uh, from the audience. I'll go ahead and and ask, which is, you know, do you all have in mind an optimal percentage penetration of delivery versus marketplace orders? you know, in order to meet your margin targets, um, or, or in other words, how much do you need the marketplace business to, to grow, to turn profitable, um, versus kind of delivery business being profitable as a standalone? Well, I, I can address that. It's a good, uh, it's a, it's a really good question uh, that I get asked a lot about. Uh, my, my conviction is pretty simple. If you take a step back and you look at the food delivery industry everywhere around the world, what you see is that the delivery category uh, is gaining share uh, versus the, the, the marketplace models or the, the aggregator models. And the reason is simple, it is gaining share because that model allows you to tap into a broader set of restaurants, uh, which is something basically consumers want, uh, and allows you to deliver much more or much shorter uh, delivery times. Think about that. Our delivery time, for instance, in France is 24 minutes on, on average, which, which I suspect is a lot smaller than uh, any of the, the aggregator model or the marketplace models are able to achieve. So my, my first point is it is a model, the, the, the delivery model is, is a model that is structurally gaining share. There isn't a single country around the world where Uber Eats hasn't been gaining share versus just eat takeaway as an example over the past year. And my conviction is this is going to continue. Um, number two, I, I really don't think we need, as, as Uber Eats, uh, I really don't think that we need um, an, an aggregator marketplace model for us to be profitable. So a lot of what I've told you about us marching towards profitability are things that have conviction we can do with the model as it is. Now, of course, strategically, it's in my interest to make sure that I can uh, tap into that uh, marketplace model. And with that in mind, I'm actually quite pleased with some of the progress we're making. We have an offering which we call internally uh, BYOC, Bring Your Own Courier, which is effectively an offering uh, targeted at merchants, at restaurants that already have their, their network of couriers, their own network of couriers. And that offering is actually getting a lot of traction. Uh, we have, you know, in Europe, for instance, I think more than 7 or 8% of the orders that are actually done with this BYOC model, uh, which is not insignificant. And secondly, the thing that uh, I find very interesting when I look at this model, as far as Uber Eats is concerned, is that uh, we offer to restaurants what we call a fallback mechanism, which means that whenever their, couriers, uh, their own couriers are busy, instead of having a consumer wait and you know, hang around and get a cold pizza, we are defaulting back this order, throwing this order back onto the Uber Eats network of couriers. And I was looking at the data recently, around 30%, 30% of the orders that we have with this BYOC, so this marketplace model, are actually falling back onto our own network of couriers. And so that just speaks for the increased efficiency that there is with the model we have. 
and I'd say overall the, the, the customer satisfaction, the restaurant satisfaction uh, for all of the partners that we have under this model is actually really, really high because of that fallback option. So that, that's kind of what makes me uh, overall excited about uh, being a business that fundamentally relies on that uh, delivery model, uh, why we will continue for sure to expand our offering into that marketplace side of things, but why I don't think this is something that is actually needed for us to be profitable because I have full conviction that this delivery model, this delivery model will be profitable. Pierre, wanted, wanted to talk about advertising. Uh, wh what have you all seen in the test of an ad product uh, in Miami, and, and when should we expect this to expand to more regions? And, and I guess, can you touch on whether this is you know, contemplated in the 15% long-term take rate guidance, or, or would a scaled advertising model be incremental? So I'm, I'm very excited actually about that advertising uh, opportunity. Uh, we have made quite some progress uh, since I, I last spoke about that publicly. Uh, we have at this point rolled out uh, our advertising product uh, everywhere across the U.S., as well as in Vancouver and Toronto in Canada. Uh, it is not rolled out to 100% of the restaurants. I think it's a, I think we have uh, about half of the restaurants that are eligible for this product just yet, as far as I remember. Uh, but we are quite happy, and you know, the, the reason why we managed or decided to expand that is we were quite pleased with some of the early results. Uh, of course, you know, there's, there's more work to do. You don't build uh, an advertising business overnight, but over time, I think that will be a substantial uh, source of uh, profit that you know we can reinvest into our growth, reinvest into um, you know a bunch of things, or, or frankly, use as a way to get to this uh, break-even level and, and to improve our, our margins. On your question specifically as to how to think about that relative to this 15% take rate, whether that's full incremental or not, I don't have a perfect answer, but I think my, my, my instinct at this point would be uh, it's going to be a bit of both, i.e. some of it will be incremental and some of it will not. The reason why I say that is uh, restaurants are going to be uh, you know, prime uh, set of users, are going to be um, prime customers for this, uh, for this offering. And, you know, it's not like restaurants P&L, you know, can ever extend, so to speak, which means there's a bit of a zero-sum game dynamic. So while I expect us to be able to, uh, to charge for that product for sure and, and extract a margin, I can see how that might mean we have to give back on other parts of the model. However, the good news is that there are a lot of advertisers and specifically CPGs, for instance, that have clearly expressed their interest in spending onto this platform we have built. And those would be by nature very much incremental dollars flowing in. So I'd say on balance, when you kind of net out those, those two effects and can, when you kind of think about the, the set of merchants that you would be targeting, advertisers that you'd be targeting for, for what we're building, I do think some of it will be incremental and some of it probably not. And, and, and that's interesting. You mentioned the CPG uh, interest. What, you know, I think of the advertising model as similar to what we've seen in online travel. Uh, where kind of a biddable take rate, you know, a kind of commission override can impact sort order. Is that the right way to think about it um, in, well, in that, the, that, on I, the restaurant side? Yeah, that is certainly on the restaurant side, the, 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 the base case. And this is what we have right now. So if you were to look at our, uh, at our app in some of the, the places where we have an ad product, uh, you will see that through the form of sponsored listings that are influencing the ranking uh, that those restaurants have. And, and then on, on the back end, we provide restaurants with a lot of tools that give them visibility as to the return they get 
on those investments as to how much they want to be and so on. So I, I'd say that's the baseline. Now, I think there's a lot more we can do and we should do uh, when it comes to advertising. Um, you know, the example of CPG, we get asked a lot uh, from, you know, whatever drink companies around, hey, I'd love to subsidize cans of soda uh, to the consumers. And they are very interested into our platform because our platform is a way for them to uh, potentially access data or potentially subsidize at scale in an instantaneous manner uh, all of their products, you know, across an entire country, if, if not more. And, and so I know for sure, because we've had interest already and we've tried things at a small scale, uh, that there'll be a number of uh, CPG players uh, interested in providing promotions effectively and subsidizing some of their products, um, you know, most likely as part of your own basket. Uh, then you could also imagine some sort of like a, a, a billboard model where, where way broader set of advertisers could decide to uh, to spend dollars on. But all, all of that is quite early days, so I don't want to paint things uh, for what they are not right now. We're very focused on uh, continuing to expand what we've built today as an ad product and over time build, uh, you know, and flex those, those muscles along the line of what I just touched on. So on the last earnings call, uh, you all highlighted a couple countries, France among them, as, as kind of case studies for profitability. So what are some of the things that are working in France, uh, perhaps across some of the, the KPIs we've, we've talked about? Well, um, well, well, first of all, I think I, I said last time around that two out of our five uh, international countries were profitable. Uh, France is one of those five countries. The other of those five countries is Australia, actually. Uh, and then we have a number of smaller markets and smaller countries that are profitable as well. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm looking at France, but I could pick, frankly, any of those countries. Uh, there are few things that have been especially effective. Uh, it's been about a uh, very relentless focus on execution and on operational excellence. To the point I made earlier, you know, we're delivering on average in 24 minutes in, in France. And, and, and this is something that we know matters for consumer and that we know retains consumers better over time. Uh, it's been about um, significant brand investments that we have made in France, in Australia, in some of those markets uh, that we see over time uh, all bearing fruits. Uh, you probably have seen uh, some of the, the, the sponsorships in France in the field of soccer. As an example, I remember there was a lot of skepticism, so to speak, at the time when we signed some of those big things, but it has turned out to, to, to be a very worthwhile investment. Um, but uh, so, so those are you know, among the, the, the top factors. Now, there's nothing structural about the country in itself that we cannot, uh, cannot replicate elsewhere. It happens that in both markets, we had a, a really strong rider base, and that has helped. But I can also think about places like Japan, where we're seeing remarkable traction despite having a rider base that is uh, pretty small in the first place. So that's certainly been a tailwind, but it's not a condition, a prerequisite condition. Uh, so those are probably the, the main things. It's worth noting, uh, in case some of you have not seen that, that there has been or have made some uh, changes, leadership changes uh, in the US recently. And the person that is now in charge of our US and Canada business is actually the person that uh, took France to where it is now uh, and that most recently was leading a business across Europe, Middle East and, and Africa. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty um, excited about some of the, 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 the changes there and, and, and the move we're making. Wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk about, you know, COVID and, and kind of what you guys have been seeing. Uh, when, you, when you look at the huge growth in, in delivery since the pandemic, 
To what extent is this driving new users to food delivery versus more intensity from existing users? Uh, you know, and how do you see this playing out as things uh, normalize? So there has been a few, there have been a few factors uh, playing in when it comes to COVID. Uh, some that I think will keep for sure and some that might, that might uh, reserve down the line. Uh, basically, if you look at the past few months, you see that there has been a big increase in eater acquisition. First of all, um, Q2, for instance, new eaters were up over 50%. Um, and so that, mean, that means a lot more people going into the category. Uh, and that, uh, I don't see any reason why we would not keep the benefit of those users. We see no difference in terms of how they engage with the app relative to the people we had before. And so I mostly treat that as an acceleration in a, in a structural behavioral change that, that, that was already happening. So that's kind of acquisition of new cons consumers and, and those are here to stay in the same way as the one we acquired pre-COVID. Uh, the same holds through with restaurants, by the way. We have seen a lot more restaurants uh, joining the, the industry. So a lot of the restaurants that we were fighting to close, you know, at times for years have actually started to get into the category and same stuff on the back of the feedback I'm getting and we're getting from them and some of the data we see, we have no reason to believe that they will suddenly disappear uh, from the category as the dining rooms uh, start to reopen again. So that's for the, the acquisition side of things. Uh, then um, we have seen an increase in engagement from the eaters, i.e. higher frequency of uh, usage. And on that, I do think it's reasonable to expect that some of it will normalize. This is currently not what we're seeing. So uh, right now we, we still see um, those elevated uh, frequency numbers, but you know, rationally you could imagine giving back some of that. Um, we have seen basket sizes increase and this has really been twofold. I think a bit of COVID impact with people maybe staying at home or ordering larger orders with families. But then it's also coincided, it has also coincided with um, me starting back in February and making a big push back to the point around unit economics on basket size, given the importance that this, uh, this has on, on the overall P&L. And, and so you'll see in the app a lot of new things that we were not doing before that are helping increase the basket size. So those are kind of some of the, um, some of the, 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 big, the, big, the big levers or the big, the big observations as far as COVID impact is concerned. One thing I would say, um, if you take a step back and you look at the, the company picture, so mobility and delivery, um, it's been interesting to see uh, some of the, 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 the diversification um, impact or positive impact we've, we've gotten out of having those two business lines. Uh, our CFO uh, disclosed last week that for instance in France again, uh, even with mobility being down 25% year on year, because we had uh, bookings accelerating to 130% year on year for delivery in August, uh, we were ending up with total GBs up uh, over 40% year on year in August. So that's a good example of how some of the, the, the two businesses uh, are strengthening one another, or, or I should say rather offsetting somehow one another, counterweighting one another. Um, right now, as we see some markets opening up or as we see improvements on the delivery front, we're not seeing yet uh, a negative impact or deflation of some of the things I touched on and specifically basket size and your engagement, but it's something we're monitoring closely. So an another one uh, relevant to this coming in from, from the audience, which is 
have you seen any changes in consumer behavior in terms of using more than one food delivery app with COVID? Are users more loyal or still very price sensitive? Uh, any changes you'd call out there? Um, I'm not sure. So besides the point I made on basket size and user engagement, I don't have any uh, anything in particular as far as like uh, loyalty and, and, and stuff is concerned. The thing I would say is uh, maybe I should have mentioned that earlier. We have seen a, a huge increase, an important increase in uh, the success of our grocery and convenience offerings. Uh, well, Corner Shop, which is the company we bought uh, in LATAM, uh, has now a run rate. Uh, well, I, I don't think we've sorry, I don't think we've communicated the run rate, but it's, it's been doing quite well, um, and obviously has been um, you know seeing a tremendous growth on the back of COVID. And I'd say besides just or beyond just Corner Shop, our own grocery efforts, and I mean by that all of the uh, stores and merchants that we have added into the core Uber Eats app at Carrefour in Europe and, and many around the world, uh, those have also been performing extremely strongly off a small base, but performing extremely strongly and contributing to the overall growth. Those are some of the top trends we've seen um, as far as consumers are concerned. I don't think there's a ton I can share uh, here on like, uh, you know, how that played with from a competitive standpoint. Okay, okay. So um, sticking on kind of this expansion beyond food delivery, you know, as we, as we look at the U.S. market for for grocery delivery, that that would pit, pit you up against some pretty well entrenched players in Instacart and Amazon, and and grocery margins obviously don't allow for large commissions from from grocery stores. So how how does Uber carve into this market profitably? You know, are the are the basket sizes and user fees enough to make money here? You know, is the is the customer acquisition the single point of customer acquisition across enough products? You know, is that make it a more kind of profitable business for you all? So the, the first thing I'd say is um, our, our entry into grocery is not unlike, uh, you know, us launching Uber Eats back then, a few years back, um, and, and expanding from our rides and mobility business. Uh, there were a number of incumbents at the time uh, with the food delivery space, and I think we, we proved that we were able to successfully leverage our brand, our technology stack, uh, our, our ops slash marketplace DNA, uh, our logistics DNA, I should say, to successfully expand in the food delivery. And so while for sure you're right to say that the industry in many countries around the world is already quite competitive, the grocery industry, uh, I still think that we bring to the table some interesting assets that, that give us a real shot uh, at uh, becoming very uh, significant in this, um, in this category. Uh, from a unit economic standpoint, a few things to, to, to call out. The first one uh, is as a matter of um, as a matter of PNL at a macro level, what you tend to see with grocery is you get lower marketplace fees than you do with restaurants, um, but you do get much higher basket sizes. And so, on balance, that 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 you know effect kind of counter or offsets one another, which means we, we do believe in the uh, profitability prospects of this, uh, of this industry and what we can build ourselves. Uh, that's one point. Secondly, we see and we believe that, you know, back to the point about advertising, uh, advertising can actually play a pretty important role in this uh, grocery vertical. And this is something we are already uh, seeing and discussing with Corner Shop. 
which has a, an, an advertising um, element in, in the app already. Uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind as far as the unit economics are concerned. And finally, um, you know, because of having this, um, this, this large user base, engaged user base, uh, we also think that we can have a clear advantage when it comes to acquiring new customers and, and getting them to use our grocery offerings for the first time. If you think about it, that user base has already been very, very helpful to us as we expanded to food delivery from mobility. I think it will be even more helpful when you think about moving from food delivery to grocery delivery, just because of how adjacent those two things are, which means that whenever people open the Uber Eats app with the intent to order food, like having a grocery shortcut that tell you now you can get your groceries, almost a, a natural extension that there will be even simpler and more logical than to tell someone, well, you used to go from A to B with Uber. Now, you know, all the foods from, from Uber, which already has been successful. You, you mentioned uh, Corner Shop and advertising. Are, are there any other things Corner Shop has been able to do in Latin America and, and for that matter, Postmates in the U.S. Uh, that, that give you kind of an idea of the applicability of that to your, your Uber Eats footprint? Well, the, the, the thing that I liked most about Corner Shop um, is, um, frankly, the grocery DNA. Uh, they were born with a grocery model in mind, which means everything they've built is designed for grocery specifically. It's not an extension of food delivery into grocery. And so they come with uh, that DNA, that set of, of talent and capabilities and, and like the capabilities you need are not necessarily identical to what you have on the food delivery. Uh, and finally, if you look at the tech itself, uh, they have built really good tech when it comes to things like the merchant uh, tools you need or whatever the shoppers need when they are in store to actually uh, buy the you know, buy, buy the pick and pack the, the items. So I'd say they, they come with a bunch of assets and they have achieved a really strong market position in the grocery space across Latam, which is, as you know, a, a critical region for Uber and a very important region. Um, so they, they, they come with that, and, and we have been quite excited about some of the progress we, we see on their front as far as the profitability is concerned. So I'd say uh, excited about the opportunity overall, excited about how Corner Shop can accelerate our own efforts, and quite happy with some of the progress we've made so far, uh, especially things like Canada or the US, where we've kind of jointly launched, we've integrated them into our app already, and so on. In a few cities. One of the here. Wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, consolidation, competition. Uh, in the U.S., consolidation hasn't taken the form most people really expected. H how do you see kind of jet grub impacting the competitive environment in the U.S., and, and does this change how you approach other markets? Well, it's difficult for me to, to speculate, uh, quite frankly. Uh, I think our key focus uh, and my key focus is just you know, operating and doing our best and improving the reliability of our experience, improving and, and broadening the selection. Um, so th that's the key focus. Now, uh, what I can say, though, is uh, we are competing, to my earlier points, with just eat takeaway in a number of markets. Um, and again, uh, because of um, their uh, conviction that the delivery model is never going to work, they're probably... Um, never really wanted to get deep into that business and to get deep into what it takes to win with, with that delivery business. And that, in my mind, explains why in every single country where we compete versus them, be it the UK, Canada, Belgium, Italy, like literally everywhere, 
we have seen uh, a category grow, uh, a category position grow, a market share grow on a year-over-year -year basis. So, of course, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stay and, and I'm competitively paranoid, which means I'm, I'm always going to assume the worst and, and I watch things very closely. But there's no reason, based on what I've seen historically, for me to be uh, worried. I also think that, um, you know, with DoorDash going public, um, there's a potentially a hope that we start to see a bit more of a normalization in some of the promo dynamics across the U.S. And I would say we feel uh, quite uh, good with some of the progress we've made in Q2 uh, in a number of cities that really matter across the country. And we're quite convinced that uh, even in a, in a number two position, we can build a really strong and profitable business out of the U.S. market. Although my personal ambition is, is definitely not to stay a number two. So looking looking maybe outside the U.S., would you say that uh, delivery competitive dynamics are, are broadly stable? How would you kind of characterize those uh, if you had to make a generalization? Um, well, uh, what, what I would say is, um, first of all, as far as our own market position is concerned, I would say that in the majority of the markets, and in particular the majority of the large-scale market markets that we compete into, I am happy with uh, the trajectory, which means I'm not happy everywhere with where we are, but I'm happy uh, with the fact that every single month I'm seeing things move in the right direction. We are already, as I think we mentioned before, in a really strong position in places like uh, Australia, like France, like now Canada, like now Japan, uh, and in the places like the UK or like Spain and, and so on that uh, are not yet markets where we have a leading position. I'm seeing a market share category position uh, move up uh, on a pretty gradual basis, which makes me uh, comfortable as to where that's headed, so to speak. So that, that's kind of the, um, the, 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 the situation as far as we are concerned. Uh, on the broader competitive dynamics, um, well, you know, as you know, uh, there has been a lot of consolidation in the industry over the past uh, decade or two, uh, which means that you have a handful, maybe three, four players that have that, you know, relevant at a global scale. Um, and as far as players are concerned, uh, to the point I made before, not every one of them has conviction or have capabilities to go deep into that delivery uh, business. And again, you know, I have full confidence that you look at this industry globally five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, uh, delivery will be what it's really about. And I, I suspect the marketplace more will start to become a small and smaller share of that whole buy. Pierre, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, talk about uh, regulatory. You know, can you give us a sense of how early polling looks for Prop 22? Well, I, I don't have any uh, number or said differently. I don't think we, we're commenting on the, some of the recent polling specifically. Uh, now, overall, what, what we said that I will definitely reiterate is uh, we're quite confident that voters will support Prop 22, uh, which fundamentally upholds the desire of drivers to continue to work when and where they want. Um, if you uh, live in California, you, you have seen us start a campaign already on Prop 22, and you'll see that uh, increase uh, even more as we approach the, 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 the election day. Uh, the good news of what makes me uh, especially uh, optimistic about what will eventually happen is that 72% uh, of the drivers that we have asked, uh, that we have asked uh, are telling us they do not want to be employees. And, and so I do think at the end of the day that this is what 
a lot of people, if not most people, uh, are looking at. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of optimistic about where that uh, will be headed. Of course, uh, if we were to fail with Prop 22, um, that means we'd be, we would have to cease using independent contractors. And so we are you know, exploring what alternative models uh, could be in that context to make sure that we can continue and operate the business. Uh, now it's, it's very clear, and I'd say maybe even more so on the mobility front, that those new models would have to involve higher price points and, and therefore making that more of a niche opportunity, uh, preventing a number of drivers from uh, you know, accessing the sort of economic opportunities that we create today. So there's, there's certainly a lot of downside overall, and including for, for society more broadly, and, and I'm frankly um, optimistic that we'll get to the outcome we want uh, on election day because uh, most people understand actually the, the, the implications of uh, a loss in Prop 22. Pierre, I wanted to sneak in one last uh, question before we're out of time, which is, you, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier the expansion of some of the subscription products. Um, can you just talk about what kind of penetration rates you've seen and, and what that does perhaps to purchase frequency or basket size uh, when you get people on a subscription? Of course. So I'd say, first of all, the, the Eats Path, which is the name we use for our uh, delivery subscription, has been available for a few months now uh, in the U.S. And, and now in a few countries around the world. Uh, in the U.S. specifically, we're seeing double-digit percentage of our delivery GBs coming from paid members, uh, which we are uh, happy with, although we think there's a lot more we can do in terms of increasing that penetration. It's really uh, the, the way we think about the, the future of our business. The reason why uh, it's fundamentally an interesting, um, an interesting lever, an engagement lever, is that it achieves a few things. It increases, as you can expect, uh, the engagement that, that users have, the number of orders that they make on a weekly, monthly basis. It increases basket sizes as well, because uh, what you typically have is your free delivery only kicks in after a certain uh, threshold is, is met. Uh, so it helps to basket size, and then you obviously collect uh, the uh, subscription fee on top of eventually having to uh, having the opportunity, if you'd like to, to charge restaurants for being part of that um, of that membership offering. So for all those reasons, I'm actually very bullish about uh, this being an important investment for us. And I have been very impressed also by some of the progress we've made outside the U.S. most recently in Japan, for instance, uh, with this uh, with this offering. All right. Well, Pierre, uh, we're unfortunately out of time. Um, this has been a great session. Thank you for presenting here, uh, and uh, and and hopefully we can do it another time in person. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you everyone for your time, and I uh, wish you a good day then. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, operator, you can go ahead and end the session.